News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi for one final day. Well, people filling up at the pump were pleased to see gas was a little bit cheaper yesterday. It needs to be lower. You know, there's room to go lower. Glad it's nine cents, not two cents. Just one of those speaking with Global News at the gas pumps. So what is causing prices to fall and how long will we be experiencing this? Dan McTagg is the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy and joins us on the line now. Good morning to you. Yes, good morning. Nice to talk about lower prices, Jill, rather than the past six months of uh, ever-increasing prices. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking back to when it was up around 230, uh, even a little bit higher at some points. <laughs> so, so what is causing this latest drop in prices? Well, 236.9 back on June the 5th. So uh, what's causing the drop has been, I think, uh, very welcome news. Uh, as some of your commentators have said, uh, perhaps not welcome enough just yet. But, uh, Jill, this is probably as good as it's going to get, and that's because we have two markets, uh, two actors, if you will, at play. There's the real physical market, the traders involved with actually, you know, moving oil, moving uh, refined product like gasoline, jet fuel, diesel, heating oil, and the like. Uh, And then there's the other market, which is the paper market. It's huge. It's massive. It's in the trillions of dollars. These are day traders, people who, uh, you know, uh, use these as financial assets for people who want to invest long term, but they're not really directly involved. But they, as managers, are looking at the headlines. They're looking at, uh, you know, the possibility that the United States will buckle and allow Iran uh, to uh, get back to the nuclear deal that it uh, broke away from, that the United States sanctioned back uh, several years ago. They're looking at uh, lockdowns in China. They're looking at inflation numbers. They're looking at the possibility of interest rates uh, rising. And they're looking, of course, at uh, something that's been sort of a little current in our uh, diction, and that's uh, demand destruction. And all those are, 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 you know, interesting points, but they, uh, from my perspective, are not valid. There has been no demand destruction, unfortunately. Um, If anything, the United States Department of Energy actually pointed out that uh, in the month of June, despite these high record prices, and that's why I began with the 236.9 here in Vancouver, uh, demand actually rose 3% above their, you know, what they had originally thought. So I think what we're looking at here is a bit of a, a uh, correction coming, and unfortunately, it's uh, it's likely to lead to higher prices, not lower prices. Although there's probably a little bit of room left, Jill, I will be watching like a hawk every single word that comes out of the OPEC meeting in Vienna on Monday, because uh, uh, it's pretty clear to me, at least led by Saudi Arabia, that they think this market is dysfunctional. I happen to agree with them. Uh, we need to get a balance between supply and demand, and we're not getting that right now, thanks to the paper traders. Hmm. And so that needs to change, obviously. Or what else do you think needs to kind of give if we're going to see more of a balance? Well, I think the one problem we're we're facing right now is that the world is, uh, whether we like it or not, is short of supply, especially diesel. And that's the stuff that, uh, you know, you uh, you need to get your economy running, whether it's to keep our jets in the air, whether it's to keep our locomotives going or our ships moving. Uh, the whole issue of uh, logistics, which has been a buzzword since we've emerged, at least from the last major, uh, you know, iteration of this pandemic, uh, has been really about the cost of energy and how it's driving inflation, and uh, that we need to produce more, that the world needs more. And all of us, I think, have sort of had to now sort of step back and say, wait a minute, 
despite where we stand for or against uh, production, we have to look at Europe and say something has failed dramatically there. It's not just Putin's war. It is the fact that they may have rushed far too quickly, and it's about to create a, a winter unlike anything that Europeans have witnessed uh, possibly since 1945. Uh, we need to ensure that there is a greater amount of energy supplied to the world and then make those transitions. But uh, to, to you know, draw a line in the sand and say we're going to do it on such and such a date, believe that windmills, you know, solar panels and EVs are the answer. They may be longer term or even hydrogen, as the Prime Minister has suggested. Uh, but they're not going to happen now, and they're not going to be effective in the next 5, 10, or 20, or 30 years. And I say that not because I don't think we need to go there. I say that because I think uh, we have to be practical and pragmatic about this. And that's unfortunately what we're seeing now is a market that is uh, likely to swing back dramatically in terms of the cost of heating, in terms of the cost of energy. And Jill, that has me very nervous for what this winter will be. Even uh, Canadians will not escape this. Uh, interesting when you, you mentioned that, because you're right, we've, we have been looking at what's happening in Germany and some other European countries uh, and uh, that meeting between uh, Germans, Germany's leader and the prime minister. Um, clearly, ob- natural gas from Canada would be a huge help but to Germany, to other countries. That's not something we've invested in, not something that can be done. And the, the, for whatever reason, the conversation was shifted over to hydrogen. Uh, but is there a chance, do you think, or can we still make that shift if there was the appetite to do that? I think we can. Um, but I mean, it's it's a question of the hydrogen that I'm familiar with. And I, I, let me take off my cap as an energy guy. Uh, my years as a member of parliament to my old days when I was public relations uh, with Toyota Canada. I mean, there's a company that is working internationally on the issue of hydrogen. There is no doubt in their mind that hydrogen will be the future at some point, but it's not going to be done with green. It's going to be done with blue. In other words, more natural gas. Canada has the third largest provable reserves of oil and gas in the world. Um, we have on the ESG rankings probably the best track record. Um, and that's, I'm not you know, tooting my own horn and being nationalistic and wrapping myself in the flag. I think the world needs a little bit more of Canada. And Canada needs to re- you know, address what is fundamentally the, for the next five to ten years a serious problem in terms of a shortage. And I think we can do that while at the same time being very mindful uh, of the uh, great transitions that we're making on our own without much uh, in the way of prodding. I, I, I'm from a province in Ontario where long before it was trendy, we built nuclear plants uh, and it gave us years of prosperity and uh, drove uh, to a large extent to a strong manufacturing sector here. I think we have to sort of take stock and inventory of what we've done and build on that, but not to say, hey, we're going we're gonna to achieve some politician's deadline because it's cool and trendy. It's going to lead to unintended consequences, and I think those consequences are pretty clear. Energy uh, affordability is very much uh, a challenge for Canadians and more so for the rest of the world because Canada's not stepping up to the plate. And uh, and just uh, kind of shifting back uh, for the day to day, like you said, the yeah. demand for gas didn't change a whole lot, and in fact, it got more. Uh, so, how long do you expect we'll see these lower prices at the pumps? Well, Jill, I think we're looking at least until Thursday. Um, your colleague uh, Jenna Brown and I go back quite often. Uh, she'll probably have the intel by Thursday as to where we go. I think we'll be back in the one mid one nineties for the end of September. But before that, a little bit of good news. On the 15th of September, the federal government, uh, for the past 30, 35 years, we shift from what's called summer gasoline blends to winter gasoline blends. That usually means about a four or five cent decrease. So we could see prices drop to 181, 182 before they start marching back up to the 195, $2 range, which I think is where we're going to be for the foreseeable future. All right. On that note, Dan, great to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us.
Oh, always a pleasure, Jill, and have a great long weekend to you and your listeners. All right, you too. That is Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Statistics Canada's numbers on fertility in this country show a pretty steady decline. This during the past 13 years. And in BC, this province now has the lowest fertility rate in all of Canada. For more on that, we are joined by Jens von Bergman, who is a Vancouver data scientist. Jens, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's my pleasure. Uh, Can you talk to us a bit about the numbers and what specifically you were looking at as far as fertility rates and the changes we've seen in Canada? Yeah, so the fertility rate is basically the estimate of uh, how many children a woman would have during their childbearing lives. Um, So it's uh, based off the current birth rates per woman by age. So it's an age-specific metric. So what we've seen over in in Canada, as in uh, many other wealthy countries is that has been declining over time. But um, what's interesting in the Canadian numbers is to look at how it's changed within different provinces. And there we've seen that BC used to be kind of middle of the pack in Canada in terms of birth per woman in the, in the early 90s. And that has steadily declined. And now it's um, the lowest and um, the gap is widening to the next province. Interesting. And I was looking as well. So nationally, even the decline from 2009 to 2020, the national rate the fertility rate fell about 16 percent. And then in B.C., that number is a lot higher. Is it closer to 22 percent? Yes, that's right. So there's a lot of different things going on. You can see also that there were times when in Canada the fertility rate rose. And at other times, it uh, overall, it's mostly declined, but there were some short periods where it rose. And it's not always clear what is driving this. Um, there are many different uh, factors contributing to changes in fertility rates. What do you see driving it, though, when we talk about the different factors? What are some of those? Right. So overall, on the Canada level, um, some things are education, for example. So generally, women will delay childbirth while they are in higher education. And as more uh, um, people in Canada seek and receive higher education, go to university, uh, stay in university longer, maybe for more advanced degrees, that is a factor that generally delays childbirth. Um, There's also just changes in economic stability um, where um, sometimes people will delay it for a couple of years um, when the economy is not doing so well. So these are all things that are happening. But um, another factor that is um, generally thought of in the literature as um, impacting childbirth is also things like housing costs. In that people will choose not to have as many children or maybe not to have children at all if they can't secure a big enough house or or secure housing? Yeah, the main factor is thought to be that um, through delaying family formation. So if it's hard um, to find housing, um, young adults will maybe stay with their parents longer or stay in roommate situations longer. And it takes um, longer until they start to form their own family like partner up, um, live together with that partner. And um, so delaying that delay, again, delays the birth um, of the first child, which reduces the number of children they may have, but also just um, slows everything down. Do we know if it's a scenario as well where people are leaving BC to to go and have children elsewhere or finding uh, that they're going to other provinces where housing is more affordable or it's easier financially to have families? 
We have some anecdotic Ebola uh, stories, and we know generally people are leaving um, um, BC. It's it's really hard to say how that impacts birth rates. Do they leave before having children, after having children? Sort of it gets counted where the children are born. Um, but there are other things too, like really simple things um, here, especially in Vancouver, when the market is so tight, people typically right-size their housing. They just don't have the funds to have an extra bedroom, which is a nice thing to have, but it's also a lot easier to think about having children if you have that extra bedroom. Right, which makes makes a lot of sense indeed. So when we're looking at these rates, we're not specifically looking at, like you said, a lot of people, uh, women are delaying having children till later, which might mean you have only one or, or two, but you don't have as many as maybe you would have had earlier on in life. Does this look as well at, at what that does for actual fertility rates in, in the amount of women or the number of women who can still have children? Or is it more that women are choosing not to have children? Well, it's, it's really hard to think about, um, think about this in choice. So in terms of delaying, what we do see is that um, the decline in fertility is particularly pronounced in the age groups below the age of 35. And actually, in the ages after, it, it is increasing like it is in most of Canada, in births um, above the age of 35. And it's decreasing a bit faster in BC than in the rest of Canada, too. So that definitely points to delaying. But um, the fertility rates just are so much lower in those older age groups um, that it just doesn't make up for, um, say, the drop in, dramatic drop in, in women giving birth um, in the age between 30 and 35 that we see in BC, for example. Right. And do you or look 25 at... 25 to 30. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Do you look at other countries as well to see if we're seeing similar patterns? Yeah. So this is something that is not unique to BC. We've seen declining fertility in many um, um, richer countries. It's sort of a general trend that um, as a country becomes richer and more educated, birth rates tend to decline. But the trends also aren't universal. There are countries that have managed to reverse this. Um, we see also um, evidence where countries that are, um, once they get very rich, um, birth rates revert again. So there's, again, this sort of economic factor coming in where, um, say, in some northern European countries, um, birth rates are higher than in um, the rest of Europe. And when you talk about that, that's interesting to look at the, the correlation there. Uh, when we talk about housing being one of the factors in BC where people would maybe choose not to have a child, or like you said, if you don't have that second bedroom, mm. does it also factor in or do you also look at salaries? Because that's often been something that not only is housing so expensive in BC, a lot of times the salaries in BC are less than what we might see even in other provinces. Yeah, well, we've seen a lot of shift on the salary front. So in, in sort of started maybe between the early 2000s to now, salaries have risen. Um, like in Metro Vancouver, median incomes have risen faster than they have in other parts of Canada. And, and part of that is sort of an effect where when the market is so tight, low income people just get pushed out. Um, this is particularly pronounced in the city of Vancouver. So... Um, you know, in, in some sense, it's probably the relationship between salaries and housing prices that, that is really driving this. I mean, if everybody was making a million dollars, then it wouldn't be so bad if housing is expensive. But um, that relationship really is, is what, what's, um, what's driving, I think, some of the delayed family formation and also the right-sizing of housing where it's just 
just much more difficult to think about children if you're already in a tight space. All right. Well, Jens, interesting numbers, certainly looking at those rates in BC and right across the country. Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. Uh, My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, a B.C. judge has awarded a business $90,000, this part of a defamation suit against a disgruntled customer. It has to do with Premier Finance doing business as Longhouse Specialty Forest Products and the customer, Tyler Ginther, who they claimed said very negative things online and in some cases things that simply were not true. So joining us to talk more about this is Greg Allen, a Vancouver defamation lawyer, also a co-founder of Allen McMillan. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks, Jill. Uh, Any surprises for you in this awarding of a $90,000 award in this defamation suit? It's not much of a surprise. It is uh, an indication of what can happen if you go online and you post things about people that aren't true. Um, the issue was this individual maintained that it was true. It was the only defense that he raised. Uh, and then he came to trial and tried to establish that it was true. And, and the trial judge just simply didn't believe him. And would the company then, in a case like this, how would they prove that those specific comments that were posted online, that those comments did cause them damage and caused harm to their company? One of the interesting things about this case is that the lawsuit was brought not only by the company, but by the principals of the company, because the individual said the the principals were involved in defrauding him and involved in what he called a scam. Uh, And so in the case of individuals, their case is actually what they call actionable without proof of damages. You don't have to prove a loss uh, if somebody's defamed you in writing, um, if you are an individual. With the company, they tried to prove that there was a loss in revenue from year over year based on these comments, uh, but the trial judge actually didn't accept that. And so the damages for the company were just a smaller portion of that $90,000. And and for that amount, I mean, it does seem like a a big amount for an individual to, to have to pay. But to go back to what you were saying, that he claimed that this was true and that his defense was what he posted online was true. Uh, is that kind of a weak defense, though, because clearly the judge didn't buy it? In this case, it turned out to be. Um, in certain cases, it, it isn't necessarily a weak defense because truth is a, a complete defense to defamation if you can prove it. One of the risks, though, about arguing truth at trial is if you say something that's defamatory of somebody and then you come to court and you say that it's true and that's your main defense the court can actually find that that increases your damages because for the plaintiff it puts them through the same circumstance of having this um, sort of horrible thing said about them but now said in open court over the course of the trial and so it actually aggravates the damages award that can be made against you. Uh, What does this say, do you think, then, or what kind of a warning does this put out to to people that you might uh, you might feel like a company, uh, you didn't get what you wanted, you didn't get to what was promised to you. And in the heat of the moment, you might feel like posting something and believe it. But what does this kind of uh, tell people or does this serve as a warning to people about uh, taking a step back or being very careful about what you put out there? It is a bit of a cautionary tale. You do have to be careful about what you put online. You have to make sure that it's true. Um, and the other thing that you can do is if you have an opinion about a company, you can express that opinion uh, as long as what you're doing is not malicious. 
that's something called fair comment, which is another defense to defamation. It just didn't arise in this case because this particular defendant didn't plead it and didn't argue it at trial. Right. And how much is it also the language that you use and, and the, the specific words that you use to describe people, to describe companies? Again, it is a cautionary tale to be careful in your language and measuring your language. The story in this case was that this individual um, ended up having, I think it was cedar soffits delivered to him that he said he didn't want and they charged his card for them. Um, at best, it appeared that that was a misunderstanding, but he was off on the internet calling it fraud and calling it a scam. Uh, and so the choice of language does really matter in these circumstances. Is it surprising at all that the company would go to this length to to get damages, or does it kind of show us just how how much online reviews can have an impact? It is a little bit surprising that the the principals of the company and the company would have gone all the way to trial. I think this trial took seven or eight days, if I recall. Um, that's a, a lot of time and money and effort to pursue these things. Most businesses, in my experience, that call me with, with defamation issues uh, decide just to move on, uh, and particularly in this circumstance where there was no evidence that anybody had read what this individual had posted and believed it. Um, and so it didn't appear that it, it had a major impact on this company out in the market. Right. I would imagine a lot of cases, or if, if it gets to this stage, wouldn't it be if a company would perhaps threaten legal action, but really what they're really asking for and what they want is for the review to be taken down. Exactly. And that's what happened in this case, in that I think it was back in 2018, the company wrote to this individual and said, we want you to take this review down. He refused. And so that may be one indication as to why the case moved forward, because the review was still out there and wasn't being taken down. I just find it so interesting, too, because it, it, it seems like it could be open to if somebody has a personal gripe with a company or is a, comp- a competitor and wants to try and find a way to get an, uh, the upper hand on a company, it would be a pretty easy thing to do to just start doing really bad reviews, even if they weren't truthful. And, and I feel like this is also perhaps a bit of a warning about that. That's right. And that's one of the ways that a plaintiff in this circumstance can establish what they call malice. If you're writing reviews that aren't truthful for an ulterior motive, for example, trying to get a better market share, that's an example of malice. And that can increase damages and and make it worse for you uh, as a defendant. Do you think looking at this case, was it the right route to go that he claimed truth the whole time? He didn't try and claim fair comment or go about it a different way as far as his defense? You know, if I were his lawyer, I probably would have advised him to plead fair comment. Uh, You know, there are these other defenses to defamation that that may assist. But given what he said, you know, it's really hard to describe it as comment. He was he was calling them fraudsters. He was calling them scammers. Really, you've put your all all your eggs in the truth basket when you do something like that. And so do you think this will, I know you mentioned a cautionary tale, Would it, will it serve then as far as this could be used in, in future cases or it could be used as precedent if there are future similar cases? Definitely. And there is a body of law that's been developing in British Columbia over the last sort of 10 or 12 years um, about you know, how the courts deal with internet defamation, because it's very different from something that's published in a newspaper or something that's said is between neighbors. Um, you know, something, the, the old saw is that things that are on the internet are on the internet forever. And so it does pose a unique challenge to the courts. All right. A very interesting case. Uh, Greg Allen, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time.
Thanks very much, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. We've been talking a lot about inflation. We know that Canada's major grocery chains are continuing to see sales and profits rise in the midst of inflation. But there is a new report out saying it is very difficult to say that uh, they are taking advantage of the situation and putting prices up higher and higher and higher. That report is from Dalhousie University's Agri-Food Analytics Lab. And joining us to talk more about it is the director of that lab, Sylvain Charlebois. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, this is uh, interesting because I think uh, there was kind of a, a general feeling or anecdotally people were looking at the prices thinking, uh, hmm, are they supposed to be this high? But what did you look at specifically as far as the chains of grocery stores and pricing? Well, uh, I mean, for, first of all, uh, the criticism that grocers are are, are getting is, is deserved. I mean, there's a, there is a track record. I mean, if you go back a couple of years ago, they were accused of uh, fixing prices with bread. And a couple of them actually admitted that they were doing it for 14 years. So, yeah, I mean, consumers have every right to be skeptical. Uh, so as a lab, we actually dove into all the numbers. Uh, I mean, publicly traded companies will provide all the numbers. Anyone can actually look into reports. And we did that over the last five years for uh, Empire, Sobeys, Loblaws, and Metro. And we looked at uh, 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 gross margins. We looked at profitability and all the ratios uh, related to, to these metrics. And honestly, I mean, as much as we wanted to find something, <laughs> we just didn't find any evidence of, of profiteering at all in the last five years. And so we thought maybe this is a Canadian thing. So let's go to the U.S. So, so we did the same thing with the top nine grocers in America. And we found out that, again, uh, gross margins were very consistent, uh, anywhere between 2 to 4%, similar to what we found in Canada. So I know a lot of politicians, different folks, think that grocers are, are, are gouging consumers, but we just can't find anything. But it doesn't mean... There's no gouging going on. We do have suspicions with some products, some verticals out there. Interesting. So even though things cost more in many cases, that doesn't automatically mean that the grocer is making more profit. Well, when you look at uh, financial results, I mean, the cost to distribute and sell goods has gone up. I mean, that's basically what's going on. And you talk to farmers, you talk to processors, Everyone is paying more to do whatever they're doing. And so that's why, I mean, because really uh, grocers are front-facing, as consumers, we only interact with grocers. It's easy to come to the conclusion that uh, what we've seen over the last several months is is quite wacky and uh, hard to explain. But, um, I mean, overall, the inflation or the impact of inflation is impacting the entire food chain uh, from both ends of the food continuum. But when you mentioned that there are some products where there are, it does seem that something is a little bit off when it comes to the prices. What specifically are you looking at there? Beef. Beef is one of them. Uh, dairy is also uh, peculiar, of course, since yesterday. Uh, dairy farmers are getting more, but uh, there was a leaked document a few weeks ago showing that the cost to produce milk has actually gone down. 
while farmers are actually getting 11% more for their milk. And that leaked document came from the Crown Corporation called the Canadian Dairy Commission. Something is going on there. Uh, we have suspicions with fish and seafood, some species, not all, some. Uh, and bakery as well, again, there's some, uh, some price fluctuations that frankly are hard to explain. So when you look at specific verticals, there are, there are stories there, but it's always hard to get to the numbers because you're dealing with a lot of private com- privately owned companies, family companies. So it's hard to get to the numbers. It's also something that I think if somebody's a, quite a savvy shopper, you'll know that one grocery store for the exact same product in one store, it might cost one amount and the other store, uh, even if it's not a huge sale or a promotion, it might be a completely different amount. So is it basically up to the consumers there? Do you think as far as you really need to shop around or you need to know where you're going to find things for the better price? I think so. And, and frankly, I do believe that Canadians are actually much smarter than just a few months ago, just because, well, food inflation uh, forced them to to get the information, get more information before you show up at the grocery store. So a more a better informed consumer will likely save more. Uh, do you think this needs more study then as far as what you were able to find out looking at the different chains and the different prices and what they're charging and what it's costing? Does this need more investigation? I believe so, yes. Uh, um, the Competition Bureau should receive mandates from Parliament to look into uh, these matters. But, and we, as a lab, we actually have worked with the Competition Bureau for several years on, 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 on different issues, including the bread uh, cartel, quote-unquote, situation uh, a few years ago, um, but they're, they're under-resourced. That's the problem. In the U.S., they don't, they don't really play around. The White House is involved, did some investigation in the beef situation, uh, only to uh, basically condemn uh, packers, and some packers actually had to compensate some consumers, and that happened just a few months ago. Highly doubtful it would happen in Canada, and that's the problem. Interesting, because when you talk about the bread issues, and people will remember that, it wasn't that long ago, a lot of consumers got gift cards as a bit of a, th- a thank you, we're sorry, our bad, we got caught. Nobody went to jail. Nobody was <laughs> right. fined. Nobody went to jail. Right. And, so- and it, it, it's very un-American. In America, if you actually uh, gouge consumers, if you actually fix market conditions artificially, you will go to jail or, or you will be fined. So do you think that grocery stores then, did they learn that lesson back then? Or are we still concerned that that is something that could happen again? <laughs> um, they, the did, they certainly didn't look good. But of course, uh, we all know that only two companies admitted guilt, Loblaws and Weston. Weston Bakeries uh, is now sold to another company, uh, and Loblaws basically threw everyone else under the bus. But Metro and Sobeys and Walmart, other companies that were involved, basically denied everything. And, and the investigation is still ongoing seven years later.
Hmm, interesting. Uh, Beautiful. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, it's uh, what a stark difference the way uh, that it's dealt with here. Uh, oh. com- compared Absolutely. to other places. Yeah. So what is your advice then for people? Uh, you've looked at this, like you said, more investigation could definitely be done on uh, the prices and what grocers are doing. But what is your advice then for people who are noticing, and it does appear when you're grocery shopping, things are getting more and more expensive? Uh, capture evidence, i.e. take pictures, uh, you know, try to understand what's going on with the market where you are. Uh, try to provide evidence to the Competition Bureau and report to the Bureau. And they'll look into it and we'll likely get a phone call. <laughs> and is it more for things when you mentioned the dairy industry, a very, very regulated industry <clears throat> with supply management? Is it different because uh, we're dealing well, with dairy? I'll rephrase that. Sorry. A very self-regulated <laughs> industry. And that's the problem. Right. Okay. Uh, but is that yeah. an area, though, that you think consumers should be looking more specifically at, or is it right across the board? I, I would say I've all, we've always had our suspicions. The Cane Dairy Commission, which is mandated to set prices at Farmgate, uh, is heavily involved with dairy farmers. In fact, uh, I've, I've always argued for many years now that the CDC and the Dairy Farmers of Canada are just one. And, uh, and there are conflicts of interest, and, and those conflicts are absolutely impacting consumers. Consumers don't know that. They don't see it because it's hidden. It's out there. But uh, when you're actually seeing your, the price of butter go up 20% in a year, that becomes a problem for everyone. Oh, absolutely. It does. And I think that's why, well, it's a whole other conversation about going to the States and buying it, but certainly why that can be tempting. Well, I mean, you guys are close to the American border, so it's hard to blame people who go south and and get their groceries. Uh, The dollar is still relatively strong, so you can get some really good deals despite uh, the differences in currency. All right. Sylvain Charlebois, always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.